Well, last week I was in the sanctuary, but I mentioned in my sermon how sometimes when we're reading the Bible, it seems like it just jumps from place to place, from story to story. And today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 4, but Matthew chapter 3, the one that comes right before it, has John the Baptist. He's preparing the way for Jesus. He's baptizing people. And then Jesus is baptized. And Mrs. Miller would tell you, if you're writing your paper, that's a very good transition. You can talk about baptism and then give an example of baptism. That works really well. But chapter 4, just stark contrast. It's almost the complete opposite from going to be baptized to all of a sudden Jesus is being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. We go from the very cool waters of the River Jordan to the barren wilderness, the huge crowds that gathered to see, to Jesus being alone and in silence, to the spirit that came down and rested upon Jesus like a dove in his baptism, to now the spirit is driving him out into the wilderness, to the voice of the Father calling him his beloved son, to the hiss of Satan the tempter or the pastor whispering you to eat your Oreo, whichever metaphor works better for you, to anointed, to attacked, to the waters of baptism, to the fires of temptation. And it's in these moments of life, whether they're high or lows, that temptation always comes. And before we dive into our text of Matthew chapter 4, let's start by remembering that Jesus did not need to be tempted to help him grow. Instead, Jesus endured temptation, both so that he could identify with us, so that he could stand as a human and also to demonstrate his holy and his sinless character. And as we go into the text now, it's important to hold that in our heart because we need to know for sure that our God does not ever ask us to go somewhere that he himself has not gone before us. So this is our text from Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now we know from James chapter 1 that the Holy Spirit, that God doesn't tempt us, but we do see here that the Holy Spirit may lead us to a place where we will be tempted. And this isn't something that happens so we have to prove something to God who knows all things, but sometimes we face temptations to prove something to us and to the uh, and people around us so that we can bring encouragement and spur them on as we struggle with our own temptations. I think there's a reason that some of the strongest Christians I have ever met in my life have been the ones who have dealt with the most or overcome the most. Whether they had sins very, very much and found out just exactly what it means to be born again and to find Jesus, or whether they were sick. And they know all too well the real struggles of life, but have come out with a faith that is deep and rich. Either way whether it is through sin and overcoming sin and addiction or through the sicknesses that we wake up every morning with, facing the long nights and realizing that it is only with our Lord Jesus Christ that the dawn comes. And in our text, Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. In the Gospel of Luke, we see that he was tempted all throughout that time. But here in Matthew, there's these three assaults that are reserved to the very last. And 40 is a fairly familiar number, right? It's teasing, uh, we see it throughout the Bible. Can anyone think of any time that the number 40 is in the Bible? Oh, hands. This is amazing. Yeah, I'm just used to people shouting at me. Yeah, shout it out. Nope. <laughs> yeah, dude, you, man. Go for it. I will take you. 
That is exactly what I have written here. Very good. Anybody else? Yes. Wait, this is the guy who wouldn't eat the Oreo when I told you. No, you. <laughs> 40 days and 40 nights. Again, we're good on this, right? Now we're going to see that the Israelites, they too, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. That's what you were going to say, I'm sure. And they failed, right? But Jesus doesn't fail here. And he's not fasting to do this self-denial type of thing or try to build himself up. He is putting himself in a place where he must be completely dependent through the Father. We are being taught in this story of Jesus and shown that obedience comes through things in which Jesus suffered. And so here comes the first temptation. The tempter comes to him and says, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now in the Greek, it's better read, and it says, When the tempter came. Well, at least I think it's better that clearly NIV didn't. But in our lives, the question here is not if the tempter come, but when the tempter comes. We are going to face temptation like Mr. Meyer talked about until we go see our Father in heaven. And we're calling here that if Jesus is alone, this first temptation comes in a way that no one would see, no one would know. The sin that he's being asked to do right here wouldn't hurt anyone. He's just making some food from him for himself. And Satan says, if you are the Son of God, since you are the Son of God, Prove it. Do something that would show me. See, Satan is coming to Jesus and he's saying, use your gifts, your power for a selfish purpose. Use what you have to better yourself. And as God's only son, surely Jesus has the right, has the power, has the ability to be able to satisfy his own needs. And I think it's at this first temptation that we feel it right away. Surely, we have the right to satisfy our own needs. Surely, because we have brought our children to this Christian school, surely because we are here in worship, we have the right to be spared from pain and suffering and struggles and temptations. Surely, we have rights to a good and perfect life. Right off the bat, Satan is using those things that we surely have rights to, using our gifts, our strengths, and turning them into traps. Right away, we see that the evil one will try to make us use our own power for our own good first and only. He wants us to use the gifts we have only for our selfish needs. And Jesus shows us how to combat this. He doesn't silently disagree with Satan or say nothing. He answers him immediately, and he answers him with the word of God. When Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8, 3 here, he shows that every word that proceeds from the mouth of God should be more precious to us than food, than the things that are surely our rights. And by relying on the power and the truth of God's word, Jesus chooses to fight this battle, not with some elaborate spiritual power inaccessible to us, right? He could have Hulk smashed Satan and sent him to another galaxy. He could have used reason or logic, but he resists him in a way that we can imitate and identify with. He uses scripture. 
He flashes out that sword of the Spirit, as it's called in Ephesians. He uses the Word of God first against temptation. Something that each one of us can use when we are alone. In those moments where we have the choice, where it won't hurt anybody, where no one will know, where it's just us. We have a choice to be able to quote Scripture to Satan, to fight against giving in. And we're going to see that Jesus uses this weapon, this scripture, not once, but three times. Because he understood its power and he understood it in its completeness. Because we're going to find out that Satan knows about God's word as well. And here in verse 5, he says, The devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple, and then said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, there it is right there in the Bible, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And for, for such a small section of Scripture here, there is a lot of deception happening. And we really get a clear look at just how horrible the evil one really is. He creates this artificial crisis, not one that requires trusting God, but one that demands a spectacle for God to prove himself. I mean, if God can do anything, then Jesus, you should prove it. Sure, at your baptism a few days ago, there, there was the voice of God and it said that, but this is now. What about today? Has God proven himself to you today? How many times do you think it would take and how many ways for us to trust God? for not needing to test God, for not needing a God who will prove himself every time we desire something or need something. How many times have we heard the evil one say to us, sure, God was there in the past, but where is he now? What did you do that turned him against you? Why has God abandoned you? Yeah, he said that, but I think what he meant really was this. Because that temptation, those voices... They come at those low and those hard points, do they not? And you see here that Satan uses the word. He doesn't use the power of the word, but he can twist it and he can change it. Because this text that Satan uses is falsely quoted from Psalm 91. He left out the part about to keep you in your ways, ways, ways of living, not body. God doesn't promise that you never will get hurt or that you will never experience pain. But Satan takes the text, leaves bits out, and applies it wrongly because he's not trying to encourage or build up. He's trying to deceive. And Jesus, understanding the whole counsel of God, knows that Satan is simply twisting God's word. And you know as well as I do that sadly there are many who are willing to believe anyone who quotes something from the Bible today. They find a line that they like, and they use it for their own advantage. They ignore the truth of the whole counsel of God, the context of it, and they could say just what is wanted and then hold it up against us. And it won't be much longer. I mean, maybe we get another day, maybe two, before the Bible starts getting edited and being made more suitable for today's language, more suitable for today's culture. But Jesus doesn't stop quoting the word here. He speaks it once again, but this time correctly. 
He knew that attempting to force or to manipulate God into such a demonstration is just an outright testing of God, which the scriptures forbid. And if this short section shows us just how horrible the evil one is and how hard he works to deceive us, twisting against us, well, it shows us even more how faithful Jesus is to us. This tempting warns us against demanding something spectacular from God and completely trusting in the cross of Jesus. That once and for all, your sins were done away with there. That Jesus, as the Son of God, had every right to get that physical protection of God. In fact, he even said to Pilate that, yeah, I'll call down angel armies if I'm supposed to be delivered. But this isn't about man's timing or my timing. It's about submitting to God, about learning to surrender to God. It's about learning that I don't need a spectacular event from God every moment. What I need is to find that the Spirit works in me to trust in God without testing Him. And I am well aware that that is easier said than done. And this last temptation, I think, is the hardest of them all because the devil takes him to a high mountain, shows him everything, kingdoms, splendor, and says, all this I will give you if you'll just bow down and worship. This question asks, what do you really want? What are you really after? Glory, riches, power, something else? There's a reason we come into service and we confess our brokenness. There's a reason we take an offering. Because there's no power in admitting that you are a sinner. There's no power in giving away what is yours. There's just sacrifice. There's just surrendering. And we see something important in that, that the things we think we are supposed to have are things that are just posing. They're just pretending to be important. These kingdoms, their authority, this splendor, it's not Satan's to give away, no matter what he says. These promises that you have heard, that there is something better for you out there? That there is a different way of living that is more suitable to you? That goes against what God calls you to in surrendering? Jesus is the one who receives the glory. And he doesn't get it from the devil. He got it from the Father and his kingdom by going to the cross. By becoming obedient unto death. What this is, is a temptation for the shortcuts of life. Glory without the suffering. And friends, believe me, as a semi-professional Mario Kart racer, I love shortcuts. Warriors, goldmine, that is the, you cannot win without the shortcut. But is it ever worth it to skip the suffering, to skip the hard work, and just receive the reward, the fast food grace? That's the real problem. And that's why it's saved for last. Because that lust for power, for riches, for glory, I mean, we just can pick up our phone, scroll, and see all of it at any time, promising us more and more and more. So you see the importance of self-discipline, the importance of giving, of knowing and trusting in God's word. Because it isn't just, I'm going to leave here today, I'm going to start reading the Bible, and my life is going to be fine. No. The temptations will be there. The struggles will always be there. But you are called to bear your cross and to follow him. Why? Because the real focus here 
is not about, it's not about learning how to fight Satan. It's about looking and seeing that Jesus has overcome these things. Jesus does what we cannot, and that is our hope. Yeah, we're going to battle and we're going to rage, but our Lord Jesus did it. He became for us what we could not. Look what it says here in Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let us walk into the light of his throne, past the shame, past the guilt that we feel for our mistakes, past the fear of inadequacy that we have in this life, past the evil one who will always whisper and lie and try to deceive us and step right to the feet of Jesus and receive the mercy and grace of him alone and his word. That's what we need. More than strength, more than clarity, more than splendor, more than convenience, more than bread. We need truth and life, mercy and grace that is only found in Jesus Christ. This text shows us how we can battle, but it shows us Jesus. It shows us Jesus, who without sin loves us. And we'll stumble, we'll fall. But Jesus does not stop speaking for you, interceding for you, loving you, and giving you what is his. He is your Jesus. So I pray that you will enter this season of Lent, that you will find strength in God's word, that you will work to resist the temptations of the devil and all his works and all his ways, but that you will seek Jesus, that you will know him and receive the one who came for you and who is yours now and always. Amen.